Uh, because of the historic decision made by the Supreme Court of uh, the United States on Friday to legalize same-sex marriage, I wrote a lengthy response to that decision that you can find on our website, you can find it on our Facebook page, or if you follow me on Twitter, I've been uh, tweeted out with a link to it to make it very convenient for you. I don't have time to cover the whole thing, uh, so let me just, if you would, let me share with you the first few paragraphs uh, before we look into the scriptures today. I just want you to hear these first few paragraphs, and then I would like for you to go out and read it, and if you, uh, if you like it, I really would like for you to retweet it, um, whatever you do on Facebook that demonstrates that you like it. I don't know what that is, but whatever you do there. And part of the reason for this is that I want to make sure that, that, uh, that Christian leadership in Evansville is seen as not being uh, belligerent and angry and defiant, but instead that we take our stand but we also love people at the same time. And I want to just kind of convey to you a little bit of the tone of that. So let me just, I'm just going to read this, if you guys would let me do this. Uh, On Friday, June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 that same-sex marriage bans are unconstitutional, redefining marriage in all 50 states. This decision will have, I believe, a profoundly negative effect on human civilization and human flourishing. As a conscientious dissenter of this ruling, I and the other members of the city church pastoral staff will graciously decline to perform weddings for same-sex couples if ever offered the opportunity. This is not obstinance on our part, nor is it mean-spiritedness. Rather, it is our conviction that God created and define marriage for all people and all times as a relationship between one man and one woman for life, a definition that has stood for thousands of years. While we respect the power granted to the Supreme Court, we do not believe that any human institution has the wisdom or the authority to redefine what God has defined. At the same time, we recognize that living in a free society means that we must coexist peacefully with people who disagree, sometimes vehemently, with us and our beliefs. Under my leadership, City Church will continue to work toward peace and harmony with the LGBT community in Evansville, knowing that there are many very good, sincere, kind, and even believing people within that community. It is a tragedy that some have been made to feel that gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgendered people are the enemy of Christianity. Nothing could be further from the truth. To anyone who has been wounded by such a perversion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, please allow me to offer my most sincere apologies on behalf of those who have delivered that message, either by word or deed. The response goes on. You get the kind of the tone of this. And uh, I I would very much like to see that be the tone of Christian leadership in the city of Evansville. And so, if you would, um, if you could put that out as much as you could put it out, not, uh, please, understand, this is not for, it's not because I want my stuff put out, that's not it. It's, I I really do want to set a tone for the city of leadership and and how Christian leadership in Evansville responds uh, to this issue, okay? Let me say a word of prayer, and then we're going to look into the scriptures today. Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we're in this cultural moment where 
Everything changed on Friday, and yet nothing changed. You, Lord Jesus Christ, are still alive. The church is still your instrument to change lives. The hope of the gospel is still present. The power of the gospel is still there. It's still as powerful as it ever was. Lord, in the, in the days, uh, months, years, decades ahead, these decisions, this decision will undoubtedly bring many difficult decisions and challenges uh, to your church. Lord, I pray that City Church, I pray that the other gospel-preaching, uh, Bible-believing churches here in the city of Evansville would be found to be gracious stewards of your truth. That we would stand firm in our convictions about what marriage is and isn't. But that we would also stand firm in our conviction that you have given us the beautiful responsibility of proclaiming your gospel to people whom you love as much as you love each of us. Lord, today as we look into the scriptures, I pray that you would challenge us, change us, speak to us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what you want to do in our lives and how you want to transform us. It is humbling to be here this morning. It is, a, it is humbling to be part of your church. It's in your name that we pray this morning. Amen. So if you're new here today, we are in a series where we're covering just the first half of the book of Mark. We've been taking a look at the historical Jesus. We want to find out who Jesus was. We want to look at firsthand accounts of the life of Jesus. We're not interested in how people spend Jesus, how they kind of shape him for themselves. We really want to know what are, what are the people who, who saw him, knew him, uh, talked to him, touched him firsthand. We want to know what they had to say about Jesus. Today, now, I'm finishing a two-part sermon in this so, big series, okay, two-part sermon. Uh, I started it last week. I left everybody on kind of a cliffhanger, and I want to finish uh, last week's sermon today. Then next week, Sean Little will be speaking, and then after Sean speaks uh, the next week, we will uh, pick up on the series uh, of Mark again. Do you guys understand what I just said? Is that, is that really complicated? You got it? Okay? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, Last week, we were talking about the issue of identity. From where, from whom, or from what do you derive your identity? Some people, as we said last week, derive their identity from their family. Some people derive their identity from their accomplishments. Maybe it's the social groups, the country clubs that they're a part of. Maybe it's their material possessions, kind of car they drive, how big their home is. Maybe they they derive their identity uh, from their career, from their grade point average in school, whatever. On the other hand, there are some people who derive their identity from the troubles that they have been through, like the bad things that have happened to them. And in fact, I I want to show you this. This past week, I came across a post on my Twitter feed uh, entitled, Nine Harrowing Images That Capture the Lasting Impact of Sexual Assault. Here was the image. Uh, I'll show it to you. And for those of you who are listening to the podcast, I'll read to you uh, what it says. By the way, welcome. If you're listening to our podcast or app, welcome. I want to read to you what this image says, because I know you can't see it. It says, 12 years later, I know I'm an actor a designer, a martial artist, an activist, a student, a dancer. But whenever I'm asked to define myself, the first thing I think of is rape victim. It's powerful. 
Perhaps some of you this morning have experienced that very thing. Or if not that trouble, some other very serious trouble in your life. And when you think of yourself, when you define yourself, you first think of yourself according to that trouble. I'm a rape victim. I'm a divorcee. I'm a single mom. I am, I am unemployed, un- unemployed. And as we said last week, the problem with all self-determined identities is that all of the things that we build our identities around either shackle us to those things that have happened to us in the past, um, like it has for this person, Or they obliterate us in the sense that if we lose those things that we tie our identity around, there is no you left. Like there's no me left. If your identity is built around your vocation, what happens if you lose your job? If your identity is built around your wealth, what if the economy tanks? Or what if another Bernie Madoff comes along? If your identity is built around your child's accomplishments, what if he or she fails or, God forbid, dies? And we said that there's a better way. There's a better way to define yourself. There's a better place from which you can derive your identity. There is a way to discover an identity that will never fail you, never shackle you to events in the past, and it will never obliterate you in the future. It won't be fragile, this identity. It won't make you dependent upon your achievements, and it won't make you dependent upon other people's praise. And if you discover this identity you will become a person that is greater than you have ever imagined that you could be. And today, I want to show you, this is where I left you off last week, I want to show you how to discover that identity. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn in it to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. If you just turn there, or find it in your digital copy of the Bible, please turn there. By the way, while you're turning, I just want to remind you guys again, Sean said it, 1 to 3 this afternoon. If you have not been through the new building, our staff and some of our other leadership will be down there. We'll be giving you guys tours of the new building. And we will be starting work on it, not too far from now. But make sure you come down there just to check it out, 1 to 3. Okay, I'm going to read just the last part of the same passage that we read last week. Because I want to remind ourselves what's happening. Look with me, if you would, at verse 13 of Mark chapter 3. Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. He changed his name. James, son of Zebedee and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, just a quick review, okay? Real quick review. Last week, we wanted to know what's up with this whole thing where he names people and then he renames people, right? Or he names this group and then he renames some of the disciples. What's up with that? Okay, we said last week that the idea of naming is important because we said that when Jesus names a person, he determines the nature of the person he names. Okay, when Jesus names a person, he determines the nature of the person he names. And by that, what I mean is that when he changed these guys' names, these weren't just nicknames that he was giving them. Like nicknames, you know, they're just descriptions of something or someone's nature. Like if your nickname is Tank, it's probably you know, you're probably not like a tall, skinny guy. I mean, you're probably a, you know, pretty hunky dude if your name is Tank. If you have a dog named Brutus, unless you're trying to be ironic, it's probably not a poodle, right? 
Okay, so those are just nicknames, you know, that just describe what is. Jesus wasn't just describing these guys. He gave them a new name because he had determined to change them. Whatever it was, whatever their identity was in the past, he was going to change that, okay? He was going to transform them into someone different than they had been before. In other words, he was giving them a new identity, which he would bring about in them, okay? Now, the second thing that we said last week was that you will never discover your true identity outside of a relationship with Jesus. Jesus wants naming rights over you, in part because he's your creator and he has the authority to do that, that, but also because he wants to turn you into someone greater than the sum of your past and greater than the things that you cling to today for your identity. He wants to give you a future that is greater than you could ever imagine on your own. And look, here's the thing. Some of you guys are fighting that today. Some of you are fighting that because, look, it's tough. it's tough giving Jesus naming rights over your life. You don't know what that's going to mean. You don't know where it's going to take you. And, and, and frankly, if you, even, you know what? Here's the thing. If, if, if you're a new name, if you're a new identity, if, like if the Blue Angels uh, you know, flew over this place today and spelled it out in the exhaust from their engines, you know what I'm talking about, the Blue Angels? Yeah, they've been here in town. You guys aware? Okay. Um, or if like uh, something, you know, came, like if a piece of paper came fluttering down from the sky and it had your new name, you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know what it meant. And frankly, if you did, you'd be scared to death of it because you can't imagine where it would take you, okay? You can't imagine. So you're scared. Some of you are scared. You know, it's tough giving Jesus naming rights over your life. Some of you, on the other hand, like are ready to hand over naming rights to your life. But you're not sure how to, how to do it. How, how do I discover the new identity that Christ has for me? How do I discover what this new name is that Jesus has for me? And that's what I want to tell you today. I want to give you that. Okay? The way that you receive your new identity is by participating in three activities that you see the men in this text participating in. And as you participate in these three activities, you will discover your new name. You'll discover your new identity. Uh, slowly, I, I promise you it'll be slowly. I mean, think about, okay, just think about this. Peter, Simon, Jesus named him, renamed him Peter, which meant rock. But what's ironic about that is that Peter was the least rocky of all of the disciples early, uh, uh, you know, early in his ministry. It took him the rest of his life to grow into that name, okay? So, so like, it, it won't happen quickly, but if you participate in these three activities, you will find slowly, inevitably, you will discover the identity that Christ has given you. Okay, and let me show you how this goes. Let's start with the first one. Uh, the first activity is sending. Sending. Okay? You may have noticed in this text that Jesus isn't just naming people in this text. He is also sending. He names them apostles. He says, you know, you guys are now apostles. They had no real idea uh, what that meant. It means sent ones, but they didn't understand all that that was going to mean at the time. Jesus sent them out to do two things, if you notice in verses 14 and 15, to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, look, I know you guys stick with me throughout this series because I know that like, the demon thing is probably what you're most curious about. But if you'll be patient, I'm saving that for later in this series. We will get to the whole demon thing. It shows up almost every week in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're going to get to it. I'll talk about the demon thing later, I promise. But I want to stick with where we're at today. If you, 
if you look at this from a, if, if you look at this preach and have authority to drive out demons thing, if you look at it from like a 30,000 foot perspective, you realize that what Jesus is actually doing is he's sending these men out into the world to liberate people, uh, to free them from what binds them, to serve people through word, to preach, and through deed, to drive out uh, demons. Now, admittedly, there's a sense in what the apostles were to do, there's a sense, a sense in which that, uh, those roles were unique, and no one else will ever do what the apostles did. No one else will ever be what the apostles were. But there is also a sense in which every follower of Christ has also been, to, been sent to serve people through word and deed. Okay? Now, okay, you're thinking to yourself, well, what does this have to do with identity? Well, think about this, okay, for a moment. Just think about this. By the way, you ever notice how much I say to you guys in sermons, think about this? Okay, the reason that I do that is that uh, Christianity is intellectual. Christianity challenges you to use not just your emotions, uh, but also your mind. Your heart, your mind, your soul, your body, all of you, but including your mind. You know, we don't want to dumb Christianity down. We're going to challenge you to think. So think about this. Jesus once said this. He said, this is another gospel. He says, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now that runs, I mean, there's so much wisdom in what Jesus just said. It runs completely contrary to conventional wisdom. Because all of the great philosophers and all of the great psychologists of the day, including Oprah, would say that in order to find yourself, you need to focus on yourself. You need to do some navel-gazing. You need to spend some time alone thinking about yourself, focusing just on yourself. But Jesus has the temerity to contradict Oprah and conventional wisdom. He says, if you do that, you will never find yourself. You will never discover your identity. Those who discover their identity lose themselves. Like they die to themselves and they serve other people. Not in a pathetic martyr kind of way where, you know, I can't, you know, I've got to do what everybody else wants me to do. Not that kind of thing. But in a loving way. Like where you're pouring yourself out for other people. Helping people, helping unleash them from the things that bind them. And out of being sent, out of being sent by Jesus emerges your name. Emerges your new identity. Now I'm going to preach just a little bit here. And, and this is going to sting a little bit. You know how like when you go get your blood drawn and they're like, uh, you know, this is going to hurt just a little bit. You know, like when they stick the needle in, it's going to hurt just a little bit. Okay, it's just it's going to hurt it's, it's a little bit. It's not going to hurt real bad, but it's going to hurt a little bit. So just get ready for it. Are you ready for this? Okay. That was me just kind of cleaning the area, right? Right there. <laughs> preparing you for this. Okay. A lot of you are so very busy doing all sorts of things. Like your career your vacation home, your hobbies, your kids' activities, your school, whatever. And you kind of cram going to church when you can. You come when you can, and there's great music, and there's okay preaching, and you meet a few people. But look, if you're too busy to serve, if you're so busy developing a self, developing your kid's self, whatever, that you're too busy to serve, 
Like you're too busy even uh, maybe to usher or you're too busy to work on our first impressions team or you're too busy to serve our children or our students or to lead a city life group or to go help clean up the city or whatever. If you're too busy, you're never going to find out, never going to find out what your identity is because it's in serving that you find out who you are. He who finds himself has to lose himself giving his life away for other people. Okay, that's the end. That didn't hurt so bad, did it? Now we're going to put a Band-Aid on it. Everything's fine. It's a little Mickey Mouse Band-Aid. It's a little whatever you like. We're going to put a little Band-Aid on there. You're fine. You're walking away. We gave you a little something to drink. You're not going to pass out on the way out. So you're fine, aren't you? Okay. Here's the second activity, okay? Here's the second activity that you need to participate in to discover your identity, okay? And we're going to call this one, we're going to call this grouping, Okay, sending, you, you know, you go out, you've been sent out by Jesus, so you're going to go serve other people. Okay. Sending, and then grouping. When Jesus went up on the mountainside and, and called these guys, it says that the text tells us that he didn't call eight people. He didn't call ten. He didn't call thirteen. He didn't call fifteen, but he called twelve. When he did that, Everyone around him would have understood the significance of that. Jesus is reminding them very strongly of Moses. Moses went up on a mountain in the Old Testament, called the 12 tribes of Israel together, and he constituted them a new nation. Now Jesus, the second Moses, the ultimate Moses, comes up onto this mountain and he calls 12 together. And this is his way of saying, I'm creating now a new people. I'm creating a new nation. I'm creating a new humanity, a new community. And in that community, and only deep in that community, are you ever going to find your identity? Are you ever going to find out who you are? Okay, think about it this way. Um, I've told you guys before that every sermon that I preach, I go back and I listen to it either on our app or on our podcast and I've done this for my entire preaching career, and I do this so that I can kind of analyze, you know, what worked, what didn't work. I'm looking, there are four or five things I'm just specifically looking for every week, you know, tendencies I have and things I don't like that I do and how to fix those things, okay? I'll bet I hear my voice on recordings uh, like more than any of you do, maybe more than any of you combined. And guess what? I still hate hearing my voice as much as you do when you hear your voice, okay? Uh, do you hate hearing your voice on a recording? Do you? Okay. Do you know why you hate that? Do you know why you hate hearing your voice on a recording? It's because uh, you're too close to yourself to know what you really sound like, right? Okay, so, so you don't really hear like your own voice through your ears, you hear your voice partially through the bones in your neck. And as a result, to you, your voice sounds far richer and much more pleasant to listen to than it does to anyone else. (laughs) So when you hear a recording of yourself, like when I hear a recording of myself, I say, whose whiny pinched voice is that? That can't be me. That's not what I sound like. But then the problem is that all of the people around me, like all of my friends, all of my family members say, no, that's pretty much exactly what you sound like. Okay? See, you don't have any idea what you really sound like. Okay, here's the thing. In the same way, you're too close to yourself to understand the character flaws that you have 
that most hurt you, that most hurt your relationships, that are holding you back. See, you're too close to yourself to see that. You have no idea who you are unless you have some people that you are in deep enough community with like people to whom you've given a hunting license for your life to tell you what the worst things are about you. Now, hopefully they're not just telling you only the worst things. Hopefully they're telling you some very nice things about yourself too. But you've got to have some people in your life that you've given hunting license to to say, help me find those things in me that are holding me back, that are destroying my relationships, that are destroying me. Help me find those things. If there's nobody who dares to do that in your life, you are not in community. You'll never find out who you are because it's only as others tell you who you are and show you the layer upon layer upon layer of self-regard and anxiety and weakness and neediness in your life that you will discover who you really are. You won't admit it otherwise. You'll be in total denial of it otherwise. It's only through community that you will see the mess you are and go to Jesus in repentance as a result, and throw yourself in desperation at him, saying, you have to help me. You have to help me. That's the only way that you're ever going to become the person that Jesus is calling you to be. Here's a couple of suggestions for how you can begin to get into community. Here's the first one. Find five or six people in your life, five or six people in your life that you would be willing to go to and to say to them, to ask them this question. What's it like being on the other side of me? Now, you're not asking what's it like being on the other side of Jeff. <laughs> you understand it? It's like, what's on the other side? What's it like being on the other side of, of you? Of you? Of you? Five or six people in your life. And here's what you have to do. You have to tell them, okay, if you tell me, uh, I will not punish you. I will not be passive-aggressive. I will not be aggressive. <laughs> There will be no punitive stuff if you tell me these things. I just want to know, what's it like being on the other side of me? Do you have five or six people you could do that with? Do you have one person that you could do that with? I want to challenge you to do that. Here's another way. Here's another way that you could do it. Uh, There are many ways to accomplish this. I I don't want you to hear this as being legalistic. It's not like I'm telling you these are the only ways to do it. There's a lot of ways. But another way that you could accomplish this is through the new City Life Group ministry that we're going to be relaunching in the second week of September. Sean Little is in charge of it, and it's going to be great. We're going to encourage you to get into City Life Groups that will meet in homes, 10, 12 people meeting in homes. And we will act, what we're going to do is we're going to tie those groups to the sermons that we preach on Sunday mornings. And so we're going to give, you, going to give the groups discussion questions from the thing that we preached on that will facilitate conversation and it will facilitate the opportunity to go deep into one another's lives and to build relationships with other people who want to discover their new identity as well. And I hope that you'll be watching for this and decide to become a part of it because I think it could be life-changing. I've been in many of these groups over the course of my life and I can tell you that every one of those groups has shaped me in some way, shape, or form. Sending, you know, serving people. Jesus has sent you if you're a follower of Christ. Being a part of the sending process 
Uh, that's important to discovering your new identity. Grouping. Being in groups with people that you're in relationship with, that have the permission to help you discover what's holding you back in life. That's an important part. And then finally, okay, here's a word that when I sent my notes, I uh, got questions. Is this really a word? Uh, and I'll just tell you it is not a word. Uh, but it's one I made up because it's the only thing I could find that would go with sending and grouping. And it's this one, withing. Withing, W-I-T-H-I-N-G, withing, okay? It's a made-up word. It's not in the Oxford Dictionary. I promise you it is not there. Withing. Here's why I'm saying this. The text says in verse 14, it says, He appointed, Jesus appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him. Withing. (laughs) Withing. It's a new word, you know? We coined it here. Withing, right? What, when Jesus says this, that he designated them apostles that they might be with him, this is the language, this is the language of intimacy. Notice, uh, he designates them so that they might be with him. It doesn't say so that they would meet with him on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 10 to 1 in class. They were to live with him. A relationship, a life-on-life kind of thing. The Bible holds out this promise of remarkable, direct, uh, real experience of love from Jesus and with Jesus. And if you're never with Jesus like that, I don't know how you can possibly get this new identity that he has for you. I've quoted this so many times that I can't remember when or to whom I've said it. For all I know, I said it last week. I don't know. I'll I'll kind of mark off today and say, okay, you said it. You don't need to say it again for a while. But um, here here it is. It comes from the old, uh, it comes from the writer Flannery O'Connor. Or excuse me, Flannery O'Connor. And she perfectly described the attitude that many people who have been subjected to legalistic teaching have learned to have about Jesus when she wrote this about one of her characters. I think we'll put it up here on the screen for you. She says about one of her characters, there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. (laughs) See, there are many people, and you'll find them often in very conservative, Bible-believing churches, who know the Bible well and who have sworn allegiance to Jesus, but who are not intimate with him because they are Scared to death of him. They are pretty sure that he is not a pleasant person to be with. In fact, not only are they not intimate with him, but they want to avoid him at all costs because they are sure that he isn't pleasant to be with and that he will spend all of his time nitpicking on them, uh, condemning them. So they're meticulous in their avoidance of sin so that they will never have to be intimate uh, with Jesus. I want you to know this morning, I want you to hear this. If you forget everything else I said today, I want you to hear this. That is not the Jesus of the book of Mark or any of the other Gospels. Listen to this. A guy, an old pastor by the name of Charles Spurgeon, he was a Baptist preacher of the 19th century. He once preached an entire sermon on on, on three words in the parable of the prodigal son. You know that parable? Okay. There's one place where it says the father ran out to his son and kissed him. And Spurgeon preached an entire sermon on those three words, and kissed him. The sermon was on those words, and kissed him. It was called Prodigal Love for the Prodigal Son. 
And in the sermon at one point, he says essentially this. He says, some of us know what it is like to be too happy to live. The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we almost had to ask God to stop the delight because we could endure no more. If God had not shielded his love and glory a bit, we believed we could not have stood it. Have you ever experienced that? Are you ever with Jesus like that? Do you ever, do you ever, have, have you known him knowing you like that? Like it's so good. You've had times with him that are so good that you had to say, stop, I can't take this anymore. If you haven't experienced that, and if you don't ever experience that, I I don't know how you will keep your heart away from getting your your identity from, from wealth or from art or from your work or from your social groups or from sex or family, or troubles that you've had in the past or the present, even sins that you have committed. I I don't know how you won't get your identity from those things. Because when you experience God knowing you and loving you like that, then you will know your distinct value and your unique purpose. See, through through intimacy and prayer, through community, through sending, uh, as you're willing to do all of this and give yourself and to, do the, to the degree that you give yourself to it and to the number of years that you give yourself to it, you will find out the name, the identity that Christ has given you, the identity that he has given you. You will come to see who you are and the things that God has made for you. And you will find the ways in which he loves you uniquely. You will discover that identity. Sending, grouping, and Withing. You learned something new today. I want to close with this. We talked about Moses a moment ago. When the first Moses went up on the mountain and called his people together, uh, at one point he was very worried about their sin. And at one point Moses says to the Lord in Exodus chapter 32, you don't have to turn to this, I'll just read it. He says, but now... Please forgive my people's sin. And if not, then blot me out of the book of life. What an incredible, amazing statement by Moses. What he was saying was, I don't want them to lose their name in the book of life. If I could be of any help, if you could blot my name from the book of life, if I could pay the penalty for their sins, blot my name out of the book of life so that their names can be in. The problem was, of course, uh, Moses couldn't pay for their sins. But the second Moses, the ultimate Moses, could. Jesus' name was blotted out, as it were, so that our names could be engraved forever in the book of life. His name was blotted out when he was crucified on a cross, paying the penalty for my sins, dying the death I should have died for my sins, so that... I could be sent by him to be in deep community with others and with him and to be powerfully transformed by him as I discover my new name and as you discover your new name. 
In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together, remembering this profound sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. 